Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Our Jamaica team is back. So will you guys stand? We just want to see you in the flesh. Glad you guys are back. And Guatemala team, you guys are back as well. So team back from Guatemala, everyone's home safely. To the glory of God, thank you, thank you, thank you. We've been praying for you. We can't wait to hear more and more about what God has done in those places. And again, it's through your generosity we're able to, to do what God has called us to do. And so thank you if you supported uh, these men and women in any way. Uh, thank you for that. Let's continue worshiping now through the study of God's word. Grab your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 23. We'll be in Exodus 23 this morning. We're going to finish up chapter 23, and then we're going to start moving uh, probably about a chapter a week after this. But we're going to finish up 23 here this morning. We're studying the book of Exodus all year long uh, until we get to Christmas. And so we're moving, um, sometimes quickly, sometimes thoroughly, th- slowly through this great epic story of deliverance of God, God's people from slavery in Egypt. On the screen now will be scripture I'm going to use this morning. Uh, I would if you want to take a picture of it, write these down for you to read throughout the week. Uh, it's only a certain amount of time that we can use here on a Sunday. So you can take this, study it, ask questions. Uh, this Wednesday night at 6.30, uh, we're going to have our Exodus Plus. So there's some things we're going to cover this morning that I can't get into a whole lot of depth about, but there's some really crazy things that are happening here. I'd love to talk with you more about on Wednesday night up in the warehouse. Love to meet you up there. Again, stuff for all ages on Wednesday nights. All right. All right. I just want to read through these verses. Uh, and then I want to just share some stuff, and then we're going to pick it apart. We're going to dive in, then we're going to take us to the New Testament to see what Jesus says about this very, very thing. So Exodus chapter 23, God has given Moses the Ten Commandments, and then he gave him the Book of the Covenant. So he gave him kind of the Constitution, and gave them, then gave them more federal law or law code. And now God's going to wrap all of that up here. Before they agree to it, God's going to give them some more Stipulations as far as what's ahead and then how to get there. Exodus chapter 23, look in verse 20. Behold, this is God speaking. I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods or serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little... I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. 
You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Uh, I, I love living in the South. Anyone else love living in the South? There's a number of reasons. Um, I like fried chicken. Uh, so that helps a lot, living in the South. I like all those things. But my favorite reason for living in the South is the SEC football. Anybody else? I love SEC football. There's nothing better. You Big Ten people, it's fine. You keep expanding to the whole nation. So whatever. <laughs> SEC, Southeastern Conference. And I, I, I love it. Um, what I love about college football in general is I love the rivalries of college football. And I love how there's always new rivalries that pop, pop up every week. Like, oh, now I hate that person. I hate that team. It's just, and I love that. So here's where I'm going to lose you. And I just encourage you to just hear me out and stay for the rest of the message. I went to the University of Florida. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Not for very long, uh, but I did, I did go there. I mean, for school, I didn't just visit. Like I went for, for school there. I get real spiritual, make you feel real bad about laughing at me, but I'm not going to right now. But anyway, so I, I man, I'm a Gator. I love the Florida Gators. Um, I think I always have since I, was, since I was a child. I've just loved following them and cheering for them. There's two teams that I cheer for every Saturday in the fall. I cheer for the Florida Gators and whoever's playing the Georgia Bulldogs. Those are the two teams I, I cheer for. <laughs> and you Bulldogs, you understand, don't you? Like you do it. You, you cheer for your black and red and then whoever's playing against whoever you hate that week, if it's Georgia Tech or whoever. Auburn, you guys have a lot of people that you don't like, and I don't quite understand how that happened. You have a rivalry game every single weekend. It's a rivalry game. Georgia Southern, ah, Georgia Southern. What? what? All right. That's not in my notes, and I'm very sorry for that. But what I love about that in, in the South, college football is the lines don't bleed, right? Like you've got houses divided, and I've seen the, the license plates. That's fine. But I mean, you can't be a Georgia fan and a Florida fan. You know what I mean? Like you can't. Like, like my kids think they can be. I'm like, listen, you, you've got one option here. And then after that, you go live with Mr. Daryl. That, that's the option. <laughs> you want to do that, there's places you can go for that. Right? You can't, like you, it's, you're all in on one of them or the other. And you can't, you can't have both. That's just, I love that about the South. It's so bad for me. And I wear black a lot, but I, I have a really hard time wearing black and red together. I know it looks good together. I get all of that. Good for you. Hail Georgia. But I, it makes me feel dirty. I just feel gross in it. And I just like that. That's how bad it like. I can't even wear. I can't do it. And I'm going to say something that might jeopardize some of my friendships with some Florida fans here. But I, I really like Athens, Georgia. I think it's one of the best college towns in America. And I love me a college town. But I, and, I, and I love it. But I can't, I cannot, I cannot go to Athens and wear black and red. Can't do it. I just can't do it. So um, I can't go to a Georgia game and cheer for Georgia. Even if I'm sitting on the Georgia side, I can't do it. I just, I cannot, can't do it. I love you and I love you and I love the team. I, I love, I'm for you, not for your teams, but I love you. But what's interesting about the South is that there are such clear lines when it comes to our college football. But in the South, the lines are blurred when it comes to Jesus. And here's what I mean by that. When I um, started actually obeying the Lord and, and pursuing ministry, I really thought that God would call me to the Northeast or the Northwest. 
Um, I like some of that more intellectual stuff in the Northeast and Northwest. And not that the South isn't intellectual, but you know what I'm saying. So I uh, thought I would enjoy that. And God repeatedly kept calling me to the Bible Belt, to the South. And I was like, God, I mean, honestly, everyone, everyone goes to church there. Why would everyone knows you and loves you and wears their khakis and polos? So why would I, why would I have to go do that? And here's what I've learned since being in ministry in the South for, I don't know, 14, 15 years. Um, it's not the people outside the church who need the gospel, it's the people inside the church who need the gospel in the South. Because while you may be able to draw the line between Georgia and Florida, like a Florida-Georgia line, while you can draw the line there, um, when, it comes, when it comes to following Jesus in the South, we have a really hard time delineating between who's actually a follower of Jesus and who just attends church because it's the South. What happens here in this passage is that God's not playing around. God's not going to mess around here in these few verses and even to the New Testament. There are clear lines when it comes to following Jesus and not following Jesus. And what's happened in more modern Christianity is that you've been sold a bill of goods that all you have to do is say that Jesus died on the cross and then that's all you need and heaven is secured for you. And the way that many of us came to faith was that we were scared by the prospect of being in hell and so we decided to follow Jesus. Now, our lives haven't changed a bit. But we bear the name and we go to church and we wear the right clothes and say the right things. Here in this passage, God's not going to play around with it. And there's something that happens here with a partnership that God's inviting his people into. And if you're paying attention, it's going to feel really weird when you read it. It's going to feel like, I don't, I don't know if that's right. And what I want to show you in scripture is, no, 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 that's absolutely right. It's absolutely right. So let's go back in Exodus chapter 23, verse 20. Behold, God says, and behold, it's just a Hebrew way of saying, pay attention, this is important. Remember, he just did the don't boil a goat in your mother's milk. And I'm sure they were all like thinking about that. And he had to bring them back into pay attention. I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. You can underline that phrase, the place that I have prepared. And if you know your Bible, you've, you've heard something similar in the New Testament, haven't you? Because Jesus says, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. This should sound familiar. But I'm, God says, I'm sending an angel. Some of your translations have a capital A there. We'll talk about that in a second. Verse 21, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice and do not rebel against him for he will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him. That phrase, my name is in him. And then the authority that's given in verse 21 leads many scholars to believe this is what's called a theophany which is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, which is why some of your translations have a capital A there, and some translations call him the angel of the Lord. That we'll talk about on Wednesday night. I want to invite you on Wednesday night. That's a whole other sermon. But God here is saying, I'm sending an angel. Maybe it's Jesus, and he's going to lead you into the land that I have prepared. Verse 22 but, so he says, don't rebel, but, verse 22, if you carefully obey, we talked about this, this is the Hebrew word shema twice. If you shema, shema, if you listen and obey, and I mean really, listen and obey, 
his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Notice the conditional clause here in verse 22. It's an if-then statement. I've prepared a place for you if you carefully obey then I will. Do you see it? We don't like to talk about this, especially in modern Christianity, these conditional aspects. If you do this, then I will. And so what happens is because we neglect all the conditional things that happen here, we, um, we get mad when God's not blessing us. And God would say, what are you doing for the blessed? Like, what are you doing though? You're... Uh, you're getting drunk and you're smoking weed and you're sleeping with a bunch of different girls that week. Like, God, why aren't you blessing me? And God, seriously? If, if you will obey, carefully obey, I will. I'm all for you. I'll be on your side. I'll be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. I've prepared a place for you. That's settled. If you obey, I'm gonna be on your side. Verse 23 when, this is not conditional, when, when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Parasites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. There's a joke there that I know you've heard a thousand times that I'm not going to do it. And here's why. I think in making the joke, we neglect the power of what's being said here. These are real people. There aren't just fake made up names like from Fortnite. This is a real thing. The Amorites, Hittites, Parasites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Here's what's happening. These people, these people groups, are all connected historically to a man, to men who are directly opposed to God, not just in the physical world, but in the spiritual realm as well. And again, Wednesday night, I'd love to talk more about that. But this is a big deal. These aren't just really good armies. These are, this is spiritual warfare. And God is saying, when, you, when my angel brings you before these people. And I blot them out. Not conditional. I'm going to do it. I'm going to blot them out. When my angel brings you to these people and I blot them out, verse 24, when that happens, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but, or instead, you should not worship them. Instead, you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Notice here, God's not playing around with false gods. He's not saying, when I blot them out, feel free to move in and use their idols as decor in your house. No, no, no. What he's saying is, I want you to shatter them. Utterly, he says. I want you to utterly overthrow them. Completely overthrow them. Don't toy with them. Don't mess with them. They're dangerous. Overthrow them. Break their pillars or their high places in pieces. Verse 25, instead, you shall serve the Lord your God, Yahweh, your Elohim. And he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take the sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. So God says, when I blot them out, I want you to do away with everything that they worshiped. Don't let any of it linger, none of it utterly destroy, utterly overthrow, break it into pieces. And then he says, because I am the one, it's me. I bless your bread and water. I take sickness away. I make sure you don't miscarry or become barren. 
I fulfilled the number of your days. Now, these are very specific things. But they take us back to Exodus 23, verse 19, where God says, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. We talked about it last week. This was a pagan practice where worshipers of pagan gods would take a baby goat and boil it alive, boil it to death in its mother's milk. They would eat it and then they would sprinkle this milk over all of their crops. The belief was that the pagan god of fertility then would bless them. That, um, that he is the one who would make them fertile, who would take away barrenness, take away miscarriages. He's the one who would bless their, their bread and their water and make them healthy. So what God is saying is, listen, you have to destroy all of them because if you don't, you will be tempted to believe that they're the ones who do it. They're not the ones. I'm the one. And we are particularly prone to worship the false gods in seasons of desperation, when we're hungry and thirsty when we're desperate to have children, when we've had a miscarriage. It's in those times where we're saying, whatever it takes, God, whatever it takes, I'm going to pursue it. So if that means worshiping this God because that God's going to make my womb fertile instead of barren, I'm so sad. I'm so desperate for it. We are tempted to worship the false God, which is why God says, no, no, no. I'm the one who does it. Destroy everything else. When you get there, here's what you need to do. Then God's going to tell them, here's how I will bring you. Here's how I'm going to prepare this place for you. Verse 27. I will send my terror or my fear before you. That's what's, that's what's going to advance. That'll be the front line of your army. And I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. There's two things this can mean. One, which would mean your enemies will turn and run from you. I'm gonna, my fear is gonna make them run away from you. The you Israelites who have no military training whatsoever. These, the spiritual warfare, these huge men of war will run from you because of my terror and confusion that I go before you. It could be they run from you. It could be, it could be a euphemism for they will bow before you that, you, that they will then follow the God of, uh, follow Yahweh, the one true God. So what God is saying is, I'm going to take care of getting them running. And then he says in verse 28, and I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. Scholars go back and forth about whether this is real hornets or not, but all scholars believe that wherever there are hornets, there is chaos. Have you ever been at a pool and some, some bratty eight-year-old kid hits like a wasp nest thinking it's funny? And then they start flying around and then chaos ensues. People are screaming. Mamas are grabbing their babies. Dads are grabbing guns to shoot the bees. Like this is all happening on the 4th of July at your pool. This is, this is happening. Where there are hornets, there is chaos. This is a Hebrew euphemism for that idea of chaos. I will send my hornets. I will send chaos. So God says, how am I going to drive them out? I'm going to send fear. I'm going to send confusion. And I'm going to send chaos. Has anyone experienced those things in the past three years? How does, God, how does God deliver the enemy into our hands? This is what he does. Fear, confusion, and chaos. He, he takes what the enemy meant for evil and he turns it for good. But then look at verse 29. But I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. 
for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand. Then watch this, and you shall drive them out before you. I will give them into your hand, you drive them out. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So what we've seen in these verses is that God says, with the if then, what God says is, I'm going to do my part. Then it's up to you what you do from there. I'm going to deliver them into your hands. I'm going to make them run. Then it's up to you. I'm going to get rid of them. It's up to you to get rid of their false gods. This, this part is on you. This is a partnership that we're going to have moving forward. But what's interesting, if you remember back earlier, God says, I have prepared a place for you. And then God says, but not totally. So that I, I'm not going to drive them out in a year. So when you travel and you go to visit family and they say to you, hey, why don't you just come and stay with us? And they say, we have room for you or we have a room for you. Has that ever happened in your family? No. Yes. Okay. People say, maybe it's friends. Like, hey, why don't you come here? We've got a place prepared for you. Now, some of you, some of you know that they mean that. They actually mean there's a place prepared for you. Like there's a room. It's your own room. And sometimes what those people mean is, I've got a place prepared for you. And you walk in like, oh, where's the place? Oh, it's this love seat right here. This is for you. And all three of your children, you can have this area, the, com the area where everyone is. Yeah, you can sleep here. Great. You got a bathroom? Yeah, the backyard works and you can just do that. Well, God says, I've prepared a place for you. Can you imagine going to somebody's house? I've got a place prepared for you and you get there. Maybe you've experienced this and nothing is ready for you. Has that happened for you? Hey, come on over this time. And so you get there and nothing is ready. Maybe it's just, hey, we've, we're going we're gonna to do dinner together. We'll take care of all of it. Hey, get here at six. And so you get there like 6.05 and they're like, oh, let me just preheat the oven and then we'll put the food in. That's not being prepared for me. Here God says, I've got a place prepared for you. But then he makes this statement and he says, but I'm not going to prepare it all the way in one year. Little by little, we will prepare the land for you. Now, if you're hearing this, you've got to be like, I mean, I really thought you said it would be prepared. God, yeah, it's prepared. They're ready. And then he says, but the reason why it's got to be little by little is because you're, if I leave it barren, all the wild beasts will come. You'll be overthrown by them. We're going to do this together. The expectation when God says, I prepared a place for you is a, um, a land that would be barren and yet fruitful. There'd be no people. There would just be birds chirping and there's fruit everywhere. This, when God says, I prepared a place, isn't that what you think of? If God says, I've prepared this for you, I've prepared this ministry for you, I've prepared this family for you, I've prepared this for you, the expectation is, well, then it's, it's smooth sailing from there. Those of us who have followed Jesus for long enough, you would say, that's never how it works, actually. When God says, I've called you to something, now we're going to partner together, and little by little, we're going to move through. The expectation is that well, if God says he's prepared a place for me, then I don't have to work for it. I don't have to work at all. Well, here's something you need to know. In the book of Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, before there was sin, there was work. Work is not the result of sin. Work is the intent of God's creation. And so here, God says, I prepared a place and we're going to do this little by little. Now, if little by little scares you, you need to know this is how your whole life has been little by little. 
It's how the Christian life works. It's how walking with Jesus works. We are transformed little by little. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image, into the glory of God from one degree of glory to another, from one click to the next to the next. This past week, um, we were able to go on vacation and we went to the Savannah Hilton Head area and we were, we were in Savannah for a number of years and we have friends there and we went back to see some friends and sometimes you forget that your kids are growing like little by little until you have to buy them clothes. You're like, oh my gosh, what just happened? But with other people's kids that you haven't seen in like eight or nine years, it's such a drastic difference. So we get there and we walk into dinner and this almost 17 year old man opens the door. I'm like, oh, I, I'm pretty sure you're eight. I don't understand what's just happened. And his voice is deeper than mine, which is like most women anyway. And so it's fine, but he, uh, he, he welcomes us in. And it's that moment of like, gosh, I've seen such a drastic transformation. And I have to remember my kids have done that too. So I want to give you some peace here this morning. Maybe, maybe you don't see your drastic transformation as a follower of Jesus. I just want you right now, just take a second. I want you to think about the you 10 years ago. And your heart 10 years ago, and the way you viewed the Lord, the way you viewed his church, the way you viewed people 10 years ago, compare that to right now. How are we doing now? One degree of glory to the next. Little by little, God is driving out the false gods in our hearts and our minds. All right, so but all this leaves us with a question, right? Like if, if it's a promised land, then why do we have to do any work in it? If it's a promise, then that should just be a promise. What, why, what's the invitation for us? This, this has to sit a little weird with us. Well, here's the discrepancy that we have, particularly in the South. God has prepared a place for you. He has in heaven. He's prepared a place for you and for me. And the access to heaven is by grace through faith. But the question is, what is faith? What does faith look like? Does faith look like, well, I just mentally assent to, well, I believe there was this man who died on the cross? Or does faith actually look like something that transforms your life? This is what's happening here. So if you would turn to Matthew chapter 22, Jesus, um, towards the end of his earthly ministry, and he is like kind of what happened in the last year or so of his ministry, the Pharisees and the scribes, kind of the experts in the law, religious law, would try to catch him um, to call him a heretic, to say that he's not who he claims to be. So they'd ask a number of questions, try to catch him in particular places. And Jesus loved these moments because he would use their words against them. And so here in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is going to talk in a parable. And the way that Jesus uses parables is not always to make complicated things seem simple. Sometimes he uses parables to make complicated things seem even more complicated to those who don't have ears to hear. So Matthew chapter 22, verse 1. Jesus, again, spoke to them, the Pharisees, scribes, and the people around in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. I have a plate prepared for you. 
My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. The invitation is not, hey, come over. I've got some hot pockets. We're going to cook those and then we'll burn our mouths together. Let's just do all that together. The invitation is I've got, I've got fillets. I've got some T-bone. Um, I, I've got it for you. We can cook it however you want it. It's all prepared. We're ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. So here's what Jesus is doing. He's telling this parable and he's calling out the Pharisees. He's calling out the religious leaders. And what he's saying is uh, there's been an invitation, but some of you were indifferent and some of you took people, messengers, and you killed them. He's speaking particularly of John the Baptist. Verse 7, but the king was angry and he sent his troops, not servants, but troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And that escalated quickly. And he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Now listen, it's not that they weren't worthy of the invitation. It's that they didn't then make themselves worthy of the feast. There's a distinction here. They were all invited to make yourself worthy is just to say yes. That's all. That's it. And they did not. Go, therefore, he says to the servants, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Now, no longer the elite and the noble, now just whoever you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. So this is, we need some work here sociologically. What would have happened particularly for a king in throwing a wedding, a wedding feast, is that he would have invited people. And there would have been on the invitation, for us, we would have an invitation that has a dress code on it. It would say business casual, which means whatever you want it to mean. Um, it would say formal, semi-formal. That's how we handle things, right? So, so if, if a, a bride sends you a wedding invitation, it's like a six o'clock wedding on a, on a Saturday night, and she says it is a formal wedding, she means it is a formal wedding. And you have to wear formal clothes. It means probably a collar and buttons. It means a, a suit jacket or a tie. This, this is what that means. To be part of the wedding, there is a code, a dress code for you. Same thing would have happened here. But instead of being a dress code, the, the king would have had a whole room set aside of wedding garments. So when the guests arrived, they would have been greeted by a host who would have said, let me take you to get a wedding garment. It's a dress code, but I'm providing the code for you. So listen, if you're looking at getting married in the next year or so, and you want to provide clothes for me to wear, you're more than welcome to do that. And I will come and put on your clothes. And so this, this is what's happening but apparently there's one guest who refused the wedding garment. And they still made their way into the feast. And the king sees him and says, friend, how did you get in here? Because there was a way in. And the way in was the wedding garment. And it's not that he was indifferent to it. It's that he refused to wear it. It's not that they ran out. There was plenty. It's not that it wasn't his size. It was that, no, no, no. What he's saying is, I think what I have to offer is better. What I'm wearing should probably qualify for that. Then verse 13, the king said to the attendants, bind him 
hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This would have been on the edge of the city where they would throw in the worst of the worst criminals. The king is so fed up with a man who says, yeah, thank you for the invitation. I'm just here for the wedding. I'm not going to put this on. And the king is so fed up that he throws him out. Also a Hebrew euphemism for Hades, for hell. The invitation was given. I've taken care of everything. I've prepared a place for you, the king says. All I'm asking is that you put on this wedding garment. If you carefully obey, shema, shema, and put on the wedding garment, we're going to have a feast together. But there's a guest who refuses to, who says, no, no, no. I think my clothes are better. And you see how the king handles it. Verse 14, Jesus says, for many are called but few are chosen. Many are invited. Some, like we saw in the first round of guests, are too busy. Some are too angry. Some are just indifferent. But few are chosen. Few are worthy in simply saying yes to the Lordship of Jesus. That's how you're worthy. How are you worthy of the wedding? Well, you put on the wedding garment. What is the wedding garment? It is the finished work of Jesus on the cross, stained in his blood. How do you get access to the promised land he has for you? How do you get into the wedding feast? He's provided the clothes. You just got to put them on. But then there are a lot of us who are like, no, 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 I kind of like the ones I have on. So I'd rather wear my clothes of self-righteousness. I feel like I've done a pretty good job. And I'm just here for the feast anyway. So why don't you just let me in? I haven't killed anybody, haven't cheated on my spouse. So I feel like I should be able to get in. Then there are some of us who would say, you invited me, so why, why do I have to get dressed at all? Like, I'm fine. So I'm gonna wear what I wore the night before partying and I'm just gonna walk right in because that, that's what you said, right? You said you, said, you said you love me exactly how I am, so I'm just gonna waltz right in. Yeah, yeah, listen, God does love you exactly how you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. So what he's provided is a wedding garment in the way in. In Exodus, it was, if you carefully obey my words, then. And what he says is, we're going to take the land together. I've prepared it. I've, I've prepared it. I'm doing all the work. I'm going to send the enemies away. Here's all you need to do. To step in is don't worship their gods. Destroy them all. But if you know the rest of the story, they didn't do it. They didn't destroy the false gods. They didn't kick everyone out. And so the Israelites, the people of God, wandered for years, both in the wilderness and in the promised land itself, until Jesus came. A place prepared requires a people prepared. Is heaven a place prepared for us? Absolutely. But it's a place prepared for people who are prepared. And you aren't prepared just because you grew up in the South. And you aren't prepared because your mama was a Christian. And you aren't prepared because you listen to Bill Gaither. And you aren't prepared because you, um, because you wear the right clothes and say the right things. And you aren't prepared because you went to a Christian school. And you aren't prepared because you go to church every Sunday. And you aren't prepared because you're a deacon. And you aren't prepared because you're a pastor. And you aren't prepared uh, because you do devotions with your kids. And you aren't prepared because of that. You're prepared when you f- accept the clothing of the finished work of Jesus. That's how you're prepared. You're prepared when by grace you have been saved through faith and your faith is expressed, as James would say, in your works. That's how you're prepared. 
when Jesus is Lord of all of your life, you're prepared. But the problem for us is that we refuse to be prepared. We refuse to do the work because we say, no, 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 you said you were going to do it. He did do it. And then the invitation to enjoy the feast is to put on the wedding garment. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is speaking to the church at Ephesus, and they've had a number of issues. And one of the great issues is that they've lost their first love. They've gotten away from following Jesus. They started giving themselves a bunch of different false gods. And so Paul writes this letter to the church at Ephesus. And in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do and the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Then verse 20, but that is not the way you learn Christ. What's happened to the church of Ephesus is, well, they've said, yeah, yeah. We accept the grace of Jesus and I want to go back to my sensuality. And he's saying, no, 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 you can't have it that way. You don't accept the grace of Jesus. You're not transformed by the grace of Jesus only to go back into sensuality and greediness. That's not, that's not how it works. If that's what you receive, that wasn't Jesus. That's what he's saying. That's not the Christ. That's not him. That's not the way we taught him to you. That's not what the gospel is. The problem is you've taken the cheap grace of forgiveness and you've adulterated it as a way to get into the wedding and still wear your own clothes. You don't get into the wedding wearing your own clothes. That's not the way you learn Christ. It's not how it works. And he continues in verse uh, 21. Assuming that you have heard about him, and we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Other places in scripture, this is referred to as repentance to change your mind or to change direction. What he's saying is the problem is you haven't repented. Repentance. That's how you put on the new clothes. Repentance. You got to put off the old, you renew the spirit of your minds, verse 24, and you put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Throughout the New Testament, people ask, well, how, how am I saved? And the disciples would, re would reply, repent and be baptized. Repent, turn. Well, I thought you said I just had to believe this thing about this man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that belief turns to repentance. True belief has repentance all wrapped up in it. You can't say you believe that Jesus is the Messiah and still live the way you're living as a Gentile, is what Paul's saying in the church at Ephesus. And I would say it this way. You can't say you believe that Jesus is your Savior, is your Messiah, and you come to church on Sundays and maybe you lead a small group and yet you're beating your wife, you're cheating on her, and you're watching pornography every night of the week. And there's no conviction in you. That's not following Jesus. That's trying to get into the wedding without the clothes on. Walter Chantry in his book called Today's Gospel says, needless to say, the Bible knows of no such grotesque creature as one who is saved but unrepentant. They go hand in hand. And again, little 
by little. Are there short seasons in your life in which you just can't seem to get out of your own way? Absolutely. But if I was to zoom out, would the trajectory of your life be more closely towards repentance or away from it? If you can continue in sin, if you can continue in whatever sin you want to name, murder, adultery, gossip, slander, if you can continue in that without a catch in your spirit of conviction, I love you enough to tell you you aren't saved. You don't have the mark of a believer. There's no such thing in the Bible as a Christian who is unrepentant. Christians repent. Which takes us back to Exodus chapter 23. I'm going to send the enemies away from you. You do the work. Tear down the high places. Put on the new clothes. Keith Green, the old contemporary Christian musician, said, making Jesus Lord of our life is not something passive. It's not a state of being. It is a state of doing. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? I'll be the first to tell you the Bible is clear. It is by grace that we are saved through faith. The only way into the kingdom is grace. That's it. The only way into the place prepared is by grace. How do we get there? Well, it's through the ongoing ethic of confession and repentance. And here's my fear for us this morning. The past couple of weeks, we've had a, a small handful of people in our church who have gone to be with the Lord. It's impressed upon me this desire to not let you live your life thinking, you, thinking there's something for you in eternity because you said something when you were nine and you raised your hand at some conference. If there is no fruit in your life of a mature believer, I think you need to spend some time today with the Lord. If you can continue in unrepentant sin and even justify it, I think you need to spend some time with Jesus today. If the only reason you're believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins is so that you can avoid hell, I think you need to do some work today with Jesus. There are many of us, a handful of us in the room today, maybe that's us. Maybe you've played the church game for long enough. And what's been clear is that over the past handful of years, you have continued to give yourself over to more and more sin, deeper and darker sin. And you're at a place now where you're justifying it because it's someone else's fault or she did this or he did that. I don't know that you can continue in sin without conviction and still call yourself a Christian. So yes, Jesus has gone away to prepare a place for us. And the invitation has been sent. And there are some in other places of the country, maybe even our county, who are uh, too busy for it, 
They're just not going to do it. Maybe they're angry about it. But I think more predominantly in our culture, there are people who are trying to get into the wedding feast without wearing the wedding clothes. Do you truly, have you given your life over to the Lordship of Jesus today? Every decision you make is run through his filter. Whom you love, where you work, what you wear, what you listen to. Your calendar, your bank account. What it means is that little by little, false gods are being run out of your heart. Is that true for you today? Because the gospel is this, we're all broken, fallen sinners, far from the heart of God. And there's no way to get back to God because of our brokenness and sinfulness. So God, in his great love for us, sent his son to live a perfect life, to become the perfect sacrifice, to pay the debt that we could not pay by giving his life on a torture stake of a cross, shedding blood to cover our sins, and then raising again on the third day, defeating sin and death and granting us access to the Father. That we would believe with our hearts, minds, souls, and strength that that was enough. And that the fruit of our lives we confess with our lips and our mouth and our lives that Jesus is Lord. And so maybe today you need to do that. Maybe for some of us today, we need to begin to reorient our lives around the Lordship of Jesus again. I'm gonna pray, and if you need to come forward today, whether it's for salvation, or just to reorient your life around the mastery of Jesus, I would encourage you to do that. We have elders and staff who'd love to pray with you. Please don't leave here unrepentant. God, we love you. Your gospel is good news. It's good news to the sinner. And it's good news to the saint. That you have rescued us from the power of darkness and set us free in the marvelous light of, the, of your Son. And God, you know the hearts and souls of each person in here. You know what you've, where they've been. You know where their hearts are. And God, I'm praying for a move of the Spirit today to convict deeply people who have built a false faith on a false foundation. If there's anyone in here today who has been living a life of unrepentant sin while claiming to be yours, God, would you show them the Scriptures in grace and love and winsomely draw them back to you? You've done it for me. I pray for our church that we would be a people of repentance, ongoing repentance, who would say daily, daily we are turning from our sin and turning to you. May we do the work of tearing down the idols, the idol factories in our hearts, shattering them utterly, that we would experience your blessing in the land you've prepared for us. In Jesus' name, amen.